Uh, Well, if you uh, have a Bible with you, uh, do you want to go ahead and grab it and turn with me to Luke's Gospel? Uh, We are uh, once again uh, in Luke, uh, continuing our series uh, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, syllable by syllable uh, through Luke's Gospel. It's been uh, probably two years now, uh, and we've reached the heady heights of Luke chapter 18. Uh, So that's where we're going to be today, and we're going to pick it up in verse 1. Uh, Luke 18, verse 1, then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. Okay, let's pause there. Now, I'm not after your sympathy, genuinely, I'm not after your sympathy, but I think I've got a pretty tough task ahead of me today. Here's a problem I'm facing. I'll just be really frank up front. Really, If you're going to be talking about prayer to a room full of people who have some kind of church background, like most of you guys, I don't think there's going to be anyone in the room who's going to have a eureka moment. Uh, I don't think anyone is going to be going as they're listening to this, oh, what do you mean? We're supposed to talk to God? I mean, we're not going to have that kind of sudden realization this morning. I think by and large, we know that. Uh, And most of us, if truth be told, actually know how to do that. I mean, it's not particularly complicated. It's not particularly complex. It's just talking to God. But here's where I think things get slightly weird. Although we know we should, uh, and by large we know how to, I think if we're being honest, almost all of us would say, well, as a believer in Jesus, as a person who has some kind of belief in God, as someone who knows they should pray and kind of knows how to pray, I still find prayer a bit of a struggle. I mean, how many people would admit to that? You you go, I'm not completely satisfied with my prayer life. Show of hands. Uh, Okay, most people in the room. So here's how this tends to work. Here's the game we kind of play. I address where I think we fall short of God's commands about prayer. I'm like, you've been very lazy in your prayer life. Uh, You lack zeal in prayer. Uh, I lay it on really thick. You lack seriousness in your relationship with God. I, I, I lay on layer and layer of guilt and condemnation. And slowly but surely, as I keep going, the guilt turns into motivation. So you say, you know what? I am lazy in prayer. I do lack zeal in my relationship with God, but no more. And so you leave here, and whatever meal is next after this, you're the most eloquent, lengthy, drawn-out prayer ever. As a result, your family strikes you off the list of you ever get to pray at a meal again. But that doesn't deter you. And when you go to bed tonight, you pray some more. Uh, you just lie in bed, and you're thanking God for everybody who comes into your mind, because Guilt has led to motivation. And maybe if you are super keen, you create a spreadsheet so you know when you're going to pray and what you're going to pray for on any given day for the next 15 years. You've kind of mapped it all out ahead of you and you go away and you start researching prayer some more. You read books on prayer, you bombard all of your unsuspecting friends on social media with irritating quotes about prayer, but by and large, guilt can only ever sustain motivation for so long. Guilt leads to motivation, but ultimately it leads to 
discouragement. And so in 12 months' time, when the subject comes back round again, you're like, you know what, I am a failure. Uh, I I feel really bad about it. I'm going to try even harder this time. It's like you and I play this game where I'm constantly trying to point out your shortcomings when it comes to the topic of prayer, and you already know you're falling short. I mean, most of you just readily agreed in front of a room full of witnesses that you know, I know, we all know this stuff. So this makes this whole thing slightly awkward, doesn't it? So here's what I thought we could do. Before we continue in Luke 18 and get to what Jesus shows us about prayer, we could try once and for all to get to the bottom of why prayer often turns into a bit of a struggle. So I want to suggest two very simple yet very big obstacles to prayer. And I'm not talking about some of the symptoms like, well, it's just boring, or I've run out of things to say, or I'm really busy, or there are too many distractions. Not, not those kind of things. I want to get at some of the kind of root issues, two of the root issues that I suggest are reasons why a lot of us struggle with prayer. Here's the first one. First of all, is an unhealthy fear of God. Notice I said unhealthy fear of God. Because fear of God is actually a good thing. The Bible teaches that we should have a healthy fear, a healthy reverence for God. Several times in my life, I've been in a situation where uh, I'm not too proud to admit I was very, very fearful. Uh, Regardless of how fast I could run or how flexible my body was or how much spinach I'd eaten, uh, I just felt ever so slightly nervous that things could go really badly for me. One time, uh, was, uh, I was out walking in the Lake District uh, with a bunch of friends. Uh, there was like uh, a cliff on this side and a sheer drop on this side. And it was starting to snow. And as visibility reduced to less than a meter in front of me, in that moment, I felt ever so slightly fragile, incredibly small, and very vulnerable. And in that moment, I've got to admit, I was frightened. Another time, I was in a small boat on a sea lock in Scotland and a storm started brewing and once again I felt incredibly small. Uh, In that moment, I didn't think, well, I'm just a great swimmer. Uh, I didn't think that one bit. I thought I was going to die. In fact, I found myself articulating those sentiments and have been mocked mercilessly by the other people in that boat ever since. Whenever see water, oh, it's okay, you're not going to die. How very funny. I wasn't just nervous in that moment. I was petrified. Here's something, here's something to always keep in mind. If what is created has the ability to terrify us, how much more should the one who created it all terrify us? You know, contrary to popular belief, God is not cuddly. He is not cute. God hates sin. doesn't really tolerate it. He hates it. If you think otherwise, you need only look at the seriousness of the cross and the reality of hell to get a picture of how seriously God views sin. 
It is outward and blatant rebellion against his holy name. He will not turn a blind eye to it. Listen, whenever we get near the holiness of God, there should be, there must be a sense of reverence and awe in us. But for those who have put their trust in Christ, his holy justice will always be buffered by his holy love. It's like the more we get to know God, the more we get to experience him, the more we grow in our knowledge and understanding of who he is, the more we grow in confidence of his love towards us, his acceptance of us, his delight and enjoyment of us. And that makes us run towards him in prayer. And more often than not, I think one of the reasons people don't pray enough is because they simply don't think God likes them enough. I mean, we don't tend to hang out with people who don't like us, do we? I mean, we, we just don't. So, for example, here's a conversation that probably you've never had and probably never will have. Hey, I notice when I'm around you, a gagging reflex tends to go off in you. I mean, there seems to be something about me that really bothers you. I mean, what are you doing for a holiday this year? Do you want to go away with me? I mean, we don't have that kind of conversation. We don't do that. If we know we seriously bother someone, if it seems to go deep with them, we kind of give them a wide berth. We avoid them. It's like, why would you want to go anywhere near people if you know they're going to keep pushing you away? It's much easier for everyone if we just avoid those people. Now, here's my point. The more you think, the more you believe that God is disappointed in you, the more in your head you think God's just a bit frustrated that he planned this whole Jesus thing for you. The the more you believe God is disappointed, the more you feel he's frustrated, the more you feel he is angry towards you, the more you'll not run towards him, you will run from him. I reckon the reason a lot of us don't pray is because we just feel like God is disappointed in us. At the end of the day, we fail to believe what the gospel says about who we are in Christ. We're chosen, we are accepted, we're forgiven, we are passionately loved children of God. That's the first obstacle. An unhealthy fear of our Heavenly Father. Here's the second one. We just don't think we need Him. We don't think we need Him. Our fear is that so many of us have decent theology in our heads. We've been well taught. We, we know it all, but we're functional atheists in practice. It's like in day-to-day life, we don't think we need Him. This can happen for all kinds of reasons. For one, I think many of us operate under the illusion of control. But there isn't anyone in this room right now whose life can't be ripped to shreds with a simple phone call later on today. We are so incredibly fragile, way more fragile than we think we are. What happens is we feel like we're in control. We feel like we've got everything in order, that we can handle whatever the world throws at us. 
So why do we need to pray? Other thing we do is, I think at times we feel like we are way holier than we actually are. As we've seen, some people have the exact opposite problem. They think their sin disqualifies them from spending time with God. But a lot of people go the other way and think they can save themselves. It's like they think they're doing God a favor by calling themselves a Christian. So why would you pray? Why do you need to pray? I mean, you're awesome. You're your own functional savior. Why do you need God? Now, if God loves you, there will come a time when he'll chip away at that. He will confront that in you. And my encouragement to you today would be that you wouldn't wait. You wouldn't wait to find out you're human. You wouldn't wait to find out how fragile you are. Because when the illusion of control dries up, that is when people hit their knees and pray. So those are two big obstacles. Why don't you pray? Because you don't think you need God. You think you're your own God. Why don't you pray? Because you have an unhealthy fear of God. You feel like he doesn't like you. He doesn't want you close to him. He's against you. You're disqualified for some reason. You don't understand the gospel. So, having looked at that, it maybe really depressed you. What I want to do now is return to Luke 18. I want to keep reading now. Read the parable that Jesus told to illustrate why we should always pray and not give up. If you like, we've looked at why we don't pray. Let's turn our attention to the positive reasons for praying. Here's what Jesus says. Verse 2, he said, In a certain town... There was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, grant me justice against my adversary, against my enemy. For some time he refused. But finally he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care what people think, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually come and attack me. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? So what does this tell us about why we should always pray and not give up? Well, first of all, consider the context. This parable is closely connected with the passage we looked at last week. If you remember, Jesus spells out what to expect during the end times before his return as well as stuff like persecution and rejection and colossal pressure. There'll also be the more subtle desensitization to the things of God due to the busyness of day-to-day life. There'll be the constant temptation to stop looking to God and to keep looking back to the things of the world. In light of which, Jesus ends this parable here in chapter 18 with the question, When the Son of Man, when Jesus comes back, will he find faith on the earth? 
In other words, will Jesus' warnings be heeded? Will his followers endure to the end? Will Jesus find us still trusting him at the end? Because like it or not, we're in a battle. If we're at school, if we're at college, our faith is constantly being ridiculed and ground down. You don't need me to tell you that being a follower of Jesus at school is not cool. Wherever we are, there's a never-ending thread of opposition. If we stand up for what the Bible teaches about matters of morality, it doesn't go down well. There's the battle to resist the relentless barrage of temptations to sin that come at us from pretty much every angle. And there's also the often unseen threat of just ordinary home life and ordinary work life, which can blunt all our sensitivity to God's eternal kingdom and his purposes. The battle to remain radical, heartfelt, self-denying, faithful followers of Christ is a very real one for all of us. Which is why Jesus warns us over in Matthew's Gospel, in Matthew 24, that at that time, the time that we live in today, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other, and many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved." I think the danger we face is that our faith in Christ and our love for him and our love for each other will be swallowed up either by direct opposition or by the lies and deception of the enemy just chipping away or by the more subtle threat of simply being preoccupied with getting through each day. So the question is, how can we endure? How can we persevere with faith until the end? And Jesus tells this parable to give us the answer. Remember verse 1, then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. The implication seems to be prayer and faith seem to stand and fall together. If we lose heart, if we drift away from prayer, then the Son of Man will not find faith in us when he comes quote a guy called John Piper, a brilliant preacher, prolific author. He says on this passage, faith is the furnace of our lives. Its fuel is the grace of God and the divinely appointed shovel for feeding the burner is prayer. If you lose heart and lay down the shovel of prayer, the fire will go out. You will grow cold and hard. And when the lightning flashes from sky to sky and the Son of Man appears in glory, he will spew you out of his mouth. There is a very real warning here. Why should we pray and never give up? Well, first of all, consider the context We're in a relentless battle. The only chance of persevering, the only chance we have of keeping our faith until the end is if we keep praying. We cannot do it by ourselves. We desperately, desperately need to keep connected to God. 
Number one, consider the context. Number two, consider his invitation to you. Picture in this parable is of a vulnerable widow who is in dire need. She represents us as believers trying to persevere in faith in a pretty hostile world. And the judge, who we're told neither feared God nor cared what people thought, is meant to stand in direct contrast to God. You need to understand, the argument of the parable is not that if you can really wear out an unjust human judge, then you may stand a remote chance of wearing out God so that he helps you just to get you off his back. That is not the message of this parable. The whole point of the parable is that everything hangs on God being different from the judge in this story. If an unjust judge who neither feared God nor cared about people, if he can be moved by the persistent pleas of a complete and utter stranger, how much more will God help his own chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Listen, Disciples of Jesus, followers of Jesus, friends of Jesus are not in the category of strangers to God. He has chosen them. He has set his favor on them. He has adopted them to be his children. It doesn't get any better than that. There is absolutely no status, no position that gets anywhere close to being chosen by God. It means he has set his favor on us as fully and as freely as an infinite God ever could. He is for us with all of his might. And the implications are mind-blowing. It's like God here is giving an invitation to us, his children, that no earthly father would ever give their children. He's saying to us, please pester me. Please keep on bothering me. Whatever you do, do not quit asking. Don't quit coming. I don't want you confusing me with this unjust judge. If he can be pestered into doing something and yet I delight in you and you are my children, why would you think twice about continually coming before me? Any dad here ever said that to their kids? I mean, I know I haven't answered yet, but please, just keep nagging me. I mean, just bombard me day and night. In the middle of the night, just come and wake me up and remind me. Don't we as fathers tend to go the opposite way? If you ask me one more time, (laughs) there's trouble. Isn't that how we respond? That's not the way Jesus is trying to get our minds around God, our Heavenly Father's delight in us. He's like, you are God's chosen ones. Why would God, after choosing you, after saving you, after rescuing you, go to all of that trouble, why would he then want to turn you away when you come to him? He's inviting us. Please, pester bother, never let up, keep on asking. Think about it. If that works 
on an unrighteous, disrespectful pagan judge. How will it play out with me who delight so much in you? Listen, it doesn't matter how you've come in here today. The invitation is crystal clear. Come on, get in here. Are you thirsty? Do you need joy? Do you need help? Do you need strength? Do you need hope? Come to me. Let me quickly show you this in Isaiah chapter 55, and then we'll wrap up. After a whole slew of chapters on the holy justice of God, I mean, you read the first 54 chapters of Isaiah if you've got a spare two or three hours. I mean, kind of full on in terms of the holiness, the justice of God. Then in chapter 55, we begin to see the holy love of God shining through. This is Isaiah 55, verses 1 to 3. Here's what it says. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine. That, that would have been a symbol of joy. And milk, milk it would, would have been a symbol of strength. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. What an invitation. What an invitation. At one and the same time, we're being invited, this side of the cross, as children of God, into the very presence of God. And we're also seeing here that he has removed every possible excuse that you could ever use to say that you wouldn't be welcome. There's no way I could pay for that. No way I've lived well enough to experience God's goodness, to be accepted by him, to be forgiven by him, to be given joy by him, to be given strength by him. I I can't afford it. I can't pay for that. I can't earn that. Yeah, that is why he's invited those who don't have any money. You who have no money, come, buy and eat. How am I supposed to buy if I don't have any money? Because he told us here, it's already been paid for. Are you thirsty? Are you hungry? Do you need strength? Do you need a bit of hope? Do you need a bit of joy? And Jesus is saying, get in here. Please, don't hold back. It has all been paid for already. Verse 2. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and you will delight in the richest affair. Give ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. I'll make an everlasting covenant with you. My faithful love promised to David. Don't want you to miss two things that are happening here. One, right at the end, we're tying the line of David that goes all the way through to who? Jesus. My my everlasting covenant through Abraham all the way to David and on unto 
Jesus, that through Jesus, life and death and resurrection, those who are far off would now be invited in. That's the covenant, that's the promise. And because of Jesus, we today in this room now get to live in the good of it. We're brought in, we're welcomed in, we're included. And then he speaks of my faithful love promised to David. Here's why this is important. Here's why you need to hear this. If you remember, David had a bit of a moral quandary in his life, didn't he? Truth be told, David was a bit lazy at times. We find out that at a time when kings should have been out at war, David didn't go. He stayed at home in his palace. And he stayed at the palace because he was peeping over at Uriah's house, watching Uriah's wife taking a bath. But it didn't stop there. He went on and committed adultery, adultery and he got his general's wife pregnant. And his way of solving all of that was to get Uriah murdered. Look at me. His list beats yours. His sins are way more bad, way more serious, way worse than yours. Correct? I mean, does anybody else trump that in here? In asking the question, I'm aware that no one is likely to put up their hands. Despite this, what happened to God's covenant love to David? You read here, it was faithful. It remained faithful through all of that. And if Jesus has paid the price for you, through his death and resurrection, you can have the exact same assurance, the exact same confidence, the exact same expectation, the exact same hope. You, even you, with your past, your background, the things you're ashamed of, the things that are still hidden and in secret, the things you suspect disqualify you from coming close, you are invited to come right in to come right in and enjoy the presence of God your heavenly father to come in and find the joy and the strength that you so desperately need there is no disqualification there is no earthly reason to hold back there is no logical explanation why you wouldn't take him up on the offer so why should we always pray and not give up First, because if we grow weary and just give up praying, our faith over time will wither and die. But second, and more positively, we shouldn't grow weary in prayer because God is not like the unjust judge. He's infinitely more kind, infinitely more loving, infinitely more faithful, infinitely more committed to do good to us. Won't you consider his invitation to you we can come and we can come boldly we can approach the throne of grace confidently why because we're loved we're delighted in we're his children and he's invited us he has commanded us to bother him 
to keep on asking, to keep on pestering, to keep pressing in and pleading. So always pray and do not give up. Now, in preparation for this morning, I was hugely blessed, hugely inspired uh, by uh, this little book by Michael Reeves, Enjoy Your Prayer Life. And because I enjoyed it so much, I thought I'd buy a stack of them and give each of you a copy of it if you'd like it. Uh, You might say, I don't read books, but have a look. The print is pretty big. Um, There are only 40 or so pages in the book. Um, If you're a slow reader, it'll take you half an hour. Uh, If you're a quick reader, it'll take you 10 minutes to read this book. Uh, And the time will be worth it in terms of just fueling more than I've been able to in the last half an hour, your enjoyment of God and your understanding of the privilege of prayer. So that's for later. Plenty of those on the table out there. Please, everyone, take one if you want one. But on the back of all that, it'd be crazy not to close this part of the meeting by inviting you to pray. I mean, why just talk about it when you could actually do it? 